Good morning. How's your weekend so far? Let's see what we can do about that. So my dad was a Marine deployed during World War II in the Pacific Theater. And I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that many people in our congregation, in fact, even people on our stage from the worship team represent military. Um, we have a lot of people that serve the military, we have a lot of people in the intelligence community, um, in our church and in our region. And I appreciate you guys. Thank you for doing what you do. Basically, it's unseen, but I thank you. Have you ever driven around with a warning light on your car? Don't lie, you're in church. Nobody has. One person. <laughs> There's one honest person here. All right, come on. Are you driving now with a warning light on your car? Yes? Okay, here we go. Ever, ever in your life done that? Okay, so here's what I know about the difference between the first service and the second service. They're all honest. You've learned how to ignore that warning. Here's some other warnings you ignore. Do you, how many times have you ignored the warning to update your computer or your phone? You just let them sit, and then you're mad because your phone doesn't work. What about that tick? I get a tick on my right eye if, if I'm a little overwhelmed in life. It's a warning sign. We live with warnings all the time. We also live in a world that is overwhelmed with information and with alarms and with warnings and things competing for your attention. So we've desensitized ourselves to warnings. Now, in the medical community, uh, they call this alarm fatigue. I know a nurse pretty well, and she tells me that when you walk into a room, there's so many alarms and things going, you just start canceling warnings all over. You can even like reset the machine so it doesn't do that because you get fatigued by it. And I know in the aviation community, we have a workaround. It's called pulling the circuit breaker. Should never have said that, but sorry. I don't do that anymore. I repent. <laughs> Honestly, it's caused major problems. It's caused wrecks. So my point isn't that. My point is that you live in a world where you have learned to ignore warnings. Even so, part of God's love for you and a big part of his grace is warning you. And we have become so, again, so desensitized to God's loving and gracious and direct warning that we explain it away theologically. I don't really think that's what it means. We try to explain it away and say, I'm not sure that, you know, I could really worship a God that would um, even warn me or judge people like that. And so we ignore it. Today, we're opening up a section of text in Revelation chapter 8, and it's a warning. It's a warning. So, as we walk through it, wonder, have you desensitized yourself to imagine that the things God clearly puts here as warnings, you've become philosophical about, 
or you ignore them, or they just don't mean that to you. Again, it's a huge grace. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to walk through the text today. Chapter 8, it's got two basic movements. One is we're going to see prayer moves God, so that's going to be very much focused on you. And then what does God do with that? God actually uses judgment as a warning for us and for the world, and it's an act of grace. So prayer moves God, and then God warns us through ongoing judgment. And it's a warning, all right? So here we go. Let me, well, let me pray for us. We're going to need it today, big time. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you uh, that you are so good. Lord, you, you speak to us through your word, and you give us encouragement. You check us. You give us warnings. You show us judgment, Lord. And we know, ultimately, Jesus takes that judgment for us. Even so, Lord, our prayer this morning is as we open up your word is that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold its treasure, that you might read us, Lord, through your word, that we might know you truly. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So prayer moves God. This is so important. I don't think you realize how responsible you are for history. Here we go. Chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now we're transitioning. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashings of lightning and an earthquake. Prayers did that. Prayers move God. So we're going to understand this first movement in a few ways. First is this. Prayer energizes this throne room that you see. Completely energizing. God is attentive to the prayers of his people, most specifically these souls that are under the altar that we read about twice before. And it connects us directly to this package or this, this passage right here. Prayer is the driving force. Um, Think of it this way. I remember when I was cooking tacos, it was Taco Tuesday years ago, and my, my son runs in, he's a little kid. He's like, hey, Jordan, who's younger than him, is standing on top of a copperhead. So I dropped, it, it drove the process. <laughs> dropped what I did, I ran out, and he was telling the truth. She was on top of a little hill of dirt, and she's sliding, and she's smiling, and she's sliding down the dirt, and there's this copperhead coiled about three feet away. And, of course, I grab the shovel, and this thing starts to puff up and get ready to strike. And, you know, I got him with a shovel. But the point is, God is intimately involved in your history and history, and your prayer moves the needle completely. You need to understand that. 
because it's very key to what we're going to understand, what we're, what we're learning here. And before we understand exactly how that flows out and what these trumpets are that we're going to read about, we have to, you know, revisit a pro tip, which is this. Revelation is not a sequential list of what's going to happen. We call this progressive parallelism. It shows you the inter-advent time from Jesus' resurrection to his bodily return to judge the living and the dead. It shows that season, which we are in right now. And it shows it seven different times from seven different perspectives. And each time it shows it, it shows something that's new and a little more detailed and the pressure ramps up. So what we did is we just crossed over section two. So when Jesus opens the seventh seal, there's silence and there's awe and he wipes away tears and he heals people and it's the last day. It's judgment. It's over. Now we, we switch, we move right through that and we see that someone is giving these seven angels trumpets. Oh, they're gonna, these trumpets are going to be like the seven seals, but they're going to be, they're going to show different aspects of this ongoing judgment and this building up of the church and what it means that Jesus actually overcame sin and death. And, and also, there's this one angel that somehow gets this incense and puts it in a censer. And a censer is essentially an incense burner, but it's bigger and it's usually metal, obviously. In the bottom of it, there's coals and the incense goes on top of it. And it fills the room with both mist and smoke in this incredible, powerful aroma. And he's taking this incense and he's mixing it with the prayers of the saints. And with one hand, he's moving this up in the throne room before the face of God. Because God delights in the prayers of his people. And so this incense moves it up. And then with another hand, he throws this censer out from the throne room to the earth. And then the seven trumpets come out. And we're going to see that. But know this prayer moves God. These prayers fill the throne room with this incense you can't even see. They're thick. They're powerful. God delights in it. So we're going to put up a slide real quick because we want to understand this. And as, as we're putting it up there, I want to show you how it connects to what we've seen before. Chapter 5, verse 8, it says... And when he had taken the scroll on the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, worshiping, each holding a harp and golden bowls, bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We've seen this before. What are these prayers? Chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, okay, altar again, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Everyone who has spent their life trusting in the living God from all of time is represented by those souls under the altar in the presence of God. And they're saying there's got to be a day when this ends. There's got to be a day when this ends. And that prayer is powerful and it's direct and it's spoken in relationship and the angel mediates that, wraps it up in incense, and pushes it up. Okay, this is Solomon's temple. There's two altars here. 
There's a altar of burnt offering where the animal sacrifices would go, the blood sacrifice. We're very familiar with that. But there's also one that we're less familiar with, the altar of incense. You see, it's right inside the temple, in the holy place, and it's positioned right in front of the veil of the holiest of holies, right? The veil that separates the holy place from the holiest of holies, the place that the high priest would go in once per year to make atonement for all of Israel. And you see the two cherubims side by side with the wings extended? Hey, angels can be fierce if you're going to defile the presence of God, just going to say that. And in between them, there's the Ark of the Covenant, and it's the mercy seat, and this is where God would come, and the glory would fill the temple there, and he would meet with Israel. But that, that altar of incense is really important because they would put the incense in it. You can read about it in Leviticus 16. It's a very special aromatic incense, and it would, it would fill the whole place with smoke and aroma, and, and it's powerful and almost intense. And it kind of shielded the high priest from the full glory of the Lord. So which altar is this that we're talking about in Revelation? Uh, it's, it's conflated. It's both of them. It's, it's apocalyptic literature. It's the essence of both of them. So when you see this essence going before God, it's sacrificial. These souls are accepted by God. These are not prayers for acceptance. They're there. This, this, this is sacrificial. But it's also delight. This aroma, this sacrificial aroma is good. God loves it. He wants it. He's in their presence. They're accepted. This is, they belong to him. So, one of the experiences you might have when you go home is maybe mom or dad or somebody's cooking and you smell the cookies and you instantly, right, this olfactory memory, you're just like, ah, I just feel at ease. God delights in this. He delights in the prayers of his people. It feels like home. It smells like home. They are accepted. Christ has made sacrifice, this incense, moves their prayers before his face. Your prayer moves the hand of God. What do you mean by that? Well, look what happens. Then the angel took the censer and filled it from fire from the altar. That's the sacrificial altar, probably. And threw it, the whole thing, throws it on the earth. God's answering their prayer. Let's do it. We're sick of it. I'm tired of death. I'm tired of decay. I'm tired of illness. I'm tired of relational trauma. I'm tired of it. Please bring the fullness of your kingdom to bear on the earth now. God's answering their prayer. He threw it onto the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So every time we see this in Revelation, it's the presence of God. Not only that, in the Old Testament. So think of the presence of God coming down, the throne room coming down to bear an incredible, graceful, but powerful weight on the kingdom of darkness on this earth. It's coming down. It's coming down. Because the saints couldn't stand it anymore. Like, this has got to end. And we know that Christ has won this for us. So your prayer moves God. So how does it move him? 
It's not the only thing we pray, is it? But in response to this, God warns. God's hand warns this earth and you. So I'm going to read through these four trumpets, and we're going to understand them. But there's two things I want you to know. Well, actually, three things I want you to know about trumpets. One is, what do they do in Scripture? Because remember that the trick of a relation isn't really spending minutia on, like, exegeting every tiny little meaning of that symbol. That's important sometimes, but you need to know the framework. If you don't understand the framework, it's, you, you'll get so far off track. So what do trumpets do in Old Testament Scripture? They do two basic things. They bring warning for war, so warning, and they also are used for worship. They announce it's time to come in, folk. It's time to be in the presence of the living God. So think Joshua chapter 6. What did they do? They marched around Jericho, and they would blow the trumpets, and it was warning. And then, of course, the seventh time it fell. Um, Even think about Nehemiah. Remember we did Nehemiah a few months back? What did they do when they dedicated the wall? Some of the trees had trumpets, and they went up on the wall, and they blew it, and it was calling the people to delight in the presence of the Lord. He did this, and so it called people in to worship. So we have both here. You have a judgment that warns and calls into worship. And the way it calls into worship is it wants you to let go of false idols and false worship. Okay, are we tracking with that? Makes sense. So the trumpets kind of, that's the genre, if you will, of these trumpets. They're warning, but they're also a warning through judgment. It's war, right? It's, it's, it's judgment, and it, it pulls us into worship by making us let go of false worship. Now, what did, should we think of them as? I want you to think of them as Exodus plagues, because they are. They mirror not one for one, but they encapsulate uh, and, and aggregate these plagues we saw come through Egypt in Exodus. Uh, you remember that story. The Exodus story in the Bible is the saving paradigm in the entire of all of Scripture. If you've never read Genesis and Exodus, we preach through it and go back and find it on our website, I think. It helps you understand the Bible. It helps you understand Jesus. So um, one commentator, Beale, said that the Exodus plagues are both the literary and the theological model for the trumpets. So as we see these trumpets pop, you need to understand them as both a judgment on the earth, like these plagues were judgment on Egypt, and also a warning. Because no one plague destroyed Egypt, did it? It was a warning for Pharaoh. It was, it was a warning for Pharaoh to, like, you got to let him go. Like, yeah, I know that you're going to call on the sun god, but Ra, you know, I, I made the sun. I know you're going, to, you're going to call on Happy, the river god of the Nile, but I made the water. Fair, you're getting, you have the right instincts, the wrong Lord. And he judges them for it. And here's what I mean by that. You're going to have one of two responses when you read these trumpets and we understand them. One is going to be like Israel, run for your life. God's opened a way of salvation. Get it. Go. Don't pick anything up. Just run. Run to the Lord. Or you're going to be like Pharaoh. Who are you? Who's God to tell me what to do? No. Forget it. Suit up. Get the chariots. Let's go. We're going to get them back. Hardness of heart. When you see God's warning in creation, 
It's either going to push you into repentance and salvation, or it's going to cause you to just, nope, hardness of heart. So let's walk through these. Warnings to judgment. Trumpet one. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. We'll get through the four of them today. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And the third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Now remember, these are recapitulations of what's already happened, looking at it from a different perspective. So this trumpet does damage on the earth specifically the grass and the trees. This is ecological destruction. This matches fire with famine that happens in Scripture all the time, especially uh, when we're looking at the Old Testament. This represents famine. Looks a lot like the seventh plague, Exodus chapter 9, where you had hail with fire and destroyed crops. And it was a judgment and it was a warning. So what does that mean in my life? That means this earth is unstable and there will be ecological disasters and there will be famine. And you will learn to trust God through it or you shake your fist at him. Don't be alarmed, friends, that there's never enough. Don't be alarmed that we suffer wildfires and ecological disasters and things of this nature. Be alarmed that you worship wealth and bounty. Be alarmed that you've built a cocoon around yourself with wealth and with God's stuff, but you really aren't that interested in knowing who he is. That's a warning. That's a warning, and it's a graceful warning. A third of the earth not the whole thing. It's a call. It's, it's, it's metered. It's tempered. It's temporary until the last day. And God's like calling us in. So trumpet one is the earth, fire and famine. We even see that in Ezekiel 5 where it matches fire with famine. Uh, so check that. Second trumpet. It talks about the sea. The second trumpet blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, as we get to each trumpet, your culpability ramps up, right? Now, my sister lived in Paradise, California, and there was this massive fire a few years ago, and it was incredible. She just lived there. As we get to these trumpets, your involvement and your culpability gets higher and higher, right? The stakes are raised. So what is he talking about? Well, in Old Testament literature, we see a mountain many times represents a nation or a kingdom. Think Zion representing Israel. Uh, and let me take you back just to show you for a moment so you can see how that works out. And this is much like the first plague you see in Exodus, Exodus chapter 7. Water is an issue. So let me take you to Jeremiah 51, verse 25. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord. This is speaking of Babylon, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you. I will roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. So this trumpet 
we see this burnt mountain getting thrown into the sea. It actually taints the sea. So what is this all about? Friends, these are kingdoms dying. These are nations and kingdoms that are probably some of the most powerful nations and kingdoms the earth has ever seen being tossed into the sea in judgment. Gone. When does that happen? Have you heard of the fall of Rome? I'll tell you about it later, baby. <laughs> oh, I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> I think that was one of my granddaughters. You're right. You haven't. Well, sometimes countries and nations don't last. And countries and nations even destroy water because it's a major resource. And the ships, the ships being taken out, that's commerce, friends. Let me ask you a question, friend. Would you still love and trust God if America was thrown into the sea? Good answer. She would, would y'all? Are you more alarmed at where this country is headed? are you more warned that this political system is temporary? Because it is. Kingdoms come and go. The third one, it ramps up. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, probably an angelic messenger, Blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So we have ecological disaster. We have nations being defeated and bringing great instability into the world system. We now have the inland waterways. Well, what does that represent? Just bitterness. This is the bitterness that comes to your life because you have built it on things in this earth, on nations in this earth, and when you suffer, you become bitter and you hate it. You know what wormwood is? It's an herb. You know what's interesting about wormwood? You'll drink it and continue to drink it, and you'll be fine, but eventually it'll take you out. It's like being at the sea, and you're thirsty, and it's beautiful, and you just start going out in the morning, and you make your coffee with salt water, and then you drink it, and eventually that salt water is going to take you out, because it might quench your thirst for a moment, but it's slowly poisoning you. This is the bitterness that comes to people that have built their life on things in this world instead of on the Creator. This is the bitterness that comes to life in people who have taken a good thing and made it a God thing, be it power, be it status, be it acclaim, be it comfort, be it your privacy, be it your freedom, be it your money, be it your job. Something good God has blessed you with that has become ultimate, and now I find it just, in, I'm incensed that God would let that fall because he knows how much I need that. I need this relationship. And life becomes bitter. 
sipping salt water. Are you more alarmed that you have to endure pain and suffering? that people can't even see what it comes from, from separation. And that takes us to the last one. And this is kind of a, a big one. And the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. This is all imagery, folks. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. It's like an intermission saying, oh, you thought those were bad? Wait until you see who's behind the kingdom of darkness that you're serving. Evil becomes personal, and you start to see strategy form up from the kingdom of darkness. Darkness. Darkness is the outcome of living in idolatry and making good things in your life, God things, and loving them above your creator. Darkness. Did you know that you could go hiking at base camp near Everest in a snowstorm and die 25 feet from your tent? It's not because of the cold. It's because you lost the horizon. You have no frame of reference. You don't know where you are. You, don't know, you literally don't know which way is up. You end up crawling along the ground nowhere. It's happened before. That's what it feels like. No line on the horizon. Complete and utter darkness, the intense pain of building your life on something other than God, and it gets stripped away, and the pain is unbearable, and the lostness eclipses everything. So, did you know that NASA said this last week that next week there's an asteroid that's going to pass Earth within 14 million miles. Just so you know, that's really close. It's in the neighborhood. Friends, if I were to tell you I've read something in Revelation and I know that that, that meteor is going to strike and the world's going to end, I guarantee you, you would change your behavior. Forget the Bible. If NASA said that, I guarantee you, you would change your life. But if the Spirit of God tells you the risen king is going to judge your life honestly and righteously, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. That's cool. That's good. Just whew, nothing. What should bring more gravity to your life? The fact that Jesus is going to return and he's actively judging evil and bringing home his people right now. And this is an act of grace and an act of love. And it's a warning to us because it's not judgment for us. Why? Jesus has taken that on. So what is this text calling for you today, friend? Sober up. Let God's warning move you. 
Don't live a life of triviality. Do you see where it ends? Don't live a life of triviality. Let God's warning move you to immediate action. Listen, Jesus won this for you, for you. Ephesians 5, 2, be imitators of God, beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Think of Jesus as the one who was hurled to earth in that censer. He took on darkness. He took on judgment. He lost the line in the horizon. Oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did it to absorb judgment. This is not, this is, that's, this is why it's a warning, not judgment for us. Don't waste your life. Let God's warning move you to immediate action. So what do you want me to do? Well, if you've never trusted in Jesus, listen to his own words. Don't build your life on sand. It's going to crash, friend. It's another way of seeing what you see in Revelation. Build it on the rock who is Jesus. Build it on his word. Build it on the grace that he gives you. You're not earning your way. He's giving it to you. Take it. That's how faith works. And friends, for everybody else, man, get in the throne room with prayer. And start losing. Would you please start losing through love? Start, instead of holding your life as your own gift, start giving it away, everything you got, time, privacy, talent, treasure, encouragement, whatever you got. This, this is what the souls under the altar are telling us. This is, this, this is do it. Live your life in love. Give it away. Give it away. This, this, this world system's dying, friends. Be careful how much you build your life on it. Trust in Jesus. He covers your sin. He covers your sin, and he reconciles you to God. He does that, and it's a free gift. Receive it and learn to live in love. That's it? Oh, yeah. Try it. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do and the most amazing thing you'll ever do. Anything else is building your life on the things around you that are in the process of dying. Anything you build your life on that can be taken away is idolatry. Okay? Build your life on Jesus. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I feel rebuked. I personally feel rebuked. It is so easy, Lord, to whittle away and to entertain myself to death and to be shocked more at an asteroid than the fact that you may come back tomorrow and ask me to give an account. And I know it's not about judgment for those in Christ, but I don't want to lose. I don't want to waste the time. Move us, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen.